Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until that presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So for the past several years, you'd be hard-pressed to scroll through your Facebook feed or Instagram feed, especially in the summertime, without seeing some of your friends posting pictures of themselves at the finish line of a mud run or obstacle course race. Events like the Warrior Dash, Spartan Race, Tough Mudder have become well-known parts of the modern recreational scene, and many of you listening have probably done one yourself. But why exactly have obstacle course races, also known as OCRs, exploded in popularity in recent times? Why do millions of affluent suburbanites pay as much as $200 to have their bodies bruised and banged and sometimes subjected to extreme cold, electrical shocks, and even tear gas? Well, my guest today has spent the past few years exploring that question, and he's made a documentary sharing the answers he's uncovered. His name is Scott Keneally, and his documentary is called Rise of the Sufferfest. And in today's show, Scott and I discuss how the little-known origins of obstacle course racing can be traced to a farm in England, how an enterprising businessman turned that idea into a multi-billion dollar industry, and the cultural forces that have provided the soil for obstacle course races to grow so rapidly. We also discussed the criticism levied obstacle course racing and what Scott thinks the future holds for OCRs. Uh, really fascinating podcast. If you're a fan of obstacle course races after the show, be sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash sufferfest uh, for a link to the documentary on iTunes as well as other resources to delve deeper into this topic. All right, Scott Keneally, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, man. So you just come out with a new documentary about obstacle course racing called Rise of the Sufferfest. And this is an interesting topic for a documentary. What led you down the path of exploring things like Warrior Dash, Tough Mudders, Spartan Race, etc.? Uh, it was a bit of a wayward journey, to be honest. I'm a journalist, and I kind of approached it initially as I just thought I'd write a one-off comedic essay about doing a Tough Mudder and... Uh, from the perspective of a beta male, like a self-proclaimed wimp um, who trains up and tackles the horrors of a Tough Mudder and writes a funny essay about it. Um, so my background or my heart is in like kind of, I guess, confessional storytelling. Um, but while I was doing a little bit of background research into the penny for that essay, I stumbled upon a little known scandal surrounding the origins of Tough Mudder. Uh, there's a lawsuit between Tough Guy and Tough Mudder. And I very quickly thought that was, there's a very compelling story there. Um, about IP theft, and it had this whole kind of social network vibe to it. So I kind of reinvented myself as an investigative journalist and spent uh, pitched a story to Ed Magazine. And after about a year of reporting and, and writing and rewriting, it landed on the cover of Outside. Um, that led to an opportunity to work with 60 Minutes, um, developing a segment about obstacle course racing. And at that point, I was so deep into this world and so fascinated by what I had seen that I, I thought maybe I should just keep 
stick with this. I always love telling stories. I always love film. So it was kind of a natural fit to try to tell this story about this community and this phenomenon uh, with uh, film. So let's talk about the industry of obstacle course racing, because this is something that didn't really exist 10 years ago. There's probably a few, but it's just blown up in the past 10 years. Can you give us sort of a bird's eye view of what the industry looks like? I mean, the size of it and how fast it's grown in the past decade? Uh, in 2009, I think there were maybe an estimated 50,000 people who were running one of these types of events. Um, you know, maybe 7,000 people, 8,000 people over in England doing Tough Guy. Um, but it wasn't really until Tough Mudder came along and Warrior Dash and Spartan Race in 2009, 2010 that it really kind of exploded. Um, and, you know, it's hard to get real actual numbers of, of the number of unique participants per year. Um, but I would estimate that there's, you know, upwards of five to seven million worldwide who will do one this year in uh, 2016. So we're seeing like massive explosive growth over a very, very short period of time. Man, that is nuts. And, and there's, I mean, there's a lot, there's also not just the big races. There's a lot of small regional ones or local ones that have started as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are, there are thousands, literally thousands of different races across the world. Um, and, you know, we hear obviously about the biggest ones, but there are all sorts of local, really amazing small community races that, that people just put on out of passion. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of opportunity to explore um, different types of experiences and brands. Right. So let's talk about one of the smaller ones that most people don't know about. But you make the argument that this was the race that started it all. Um, the inspiration for this obstacle course racing explosion we've seen in the past 10 years, um, it's called the Tough Guy. It's in England. And it was started by this really eccentric guy with a handlebar mustache named Billy Wilson, also known as Mr. Mouse. Can you tell us a bit about Mr. Mouse and this Tough Guy race, how it started and why it started and uh, when it started? It started back in 1987 uh, in January. Um, in the, it's in the Midlands of England, and so it's very, very cold that time of year. And it started off very simple. It was a, you know, a cross-country course with lots of water obstacles, which, of course, were miserable because it's January in England. Um, hay bales, and, and over the years, it really gradually grew organically and, and built, he built bigger obstacles, and um, it kind of evolved naturally. He'd just come up with these crazy ideas and, and execute them. And um, in 1999, he added electricity to the course, which was, you know, pretty unheard of. I mean, we, you know, what's, what's so interesting about this is we take it for granted that Tough Mudder has electricity on a running course. But, you know, 15 years ago, that is absolutely insane and, uh, and was so far out there and he got so much flack for it. Um, people really thought he was, he was, he was nuts. Um, and so, you know, he, why he did this, you know, he has a, a military background and he thought it was a fun way for people to get into shape. And also, you know, he wants to teach people about war and, and, and remind people about, of the horrors that, you know, our ancestors have gone through. Um, I think part of that is like somewhere he, he believes that if, if we experience the horrors of, of war, we may be less inclined to go to war. Um, you know, as you know, these days, very of us have, there's a, you know, no expectation that any of us will ever have to fight in war. So um, he's giving us kind of a taste of these horrors. So we have maybe more empathy, more understanding for, for, you know, the struggle. Right. And how did it inspire Tough Mudder? Because you talk about it 
earlier that there was this sort of IP battle between Tough Guy and Tough Mudder. Can you can you give us a little bit of the story there and the controversy? Sure. So Will Dean, the CEO of Tough Mudder, was a Harvard Business School graduate, and he studied. He reached out to Mr. Mouse and um, said that he wanted to do a help Tough Guy essentially expand to the U.S. Um, and do a business school study. And so he, you know, got some intellectual property, if you want to call it that, from Mr. Mouse. Um, and he, you know, didn't work with Tough Guy to bring it to the U.S. He instead started Tough Mutter in the USA. And so uh, Mr. Mouse felt like he was, you know, had been ripped off and that we had infiltrated his company and stolen trade secrets. And, and, um, and Will obviously saw it differently. And um, he was sued and, and they settled after a pretty bitter legal battle. And um, they settled for $725,000 that uh, Will paid uh, to Tough Guy. And, you know, at the time, Tough Mudder was a, was a pretty small brand. So that was a lot of money. But, you know, within a couple of years, Tough Mudder became a $70 million brand. Um, and Tough Guy at this point is still just kind of hanging on. Yeah, let's talk about that. Why is that? Why is it the, the race that started all the races? And why has it not done so well while others have done so well? I mean, a lot of it, it it's Mr. Mouse, really. I, I think he's the, first of all, he, he has no <laughs> real good commercial awareness or marketing sense. Um, and it's not really what he's after. I don't think his end goal is to make a lot of money off this. I mean, it, it's not. He's a, I think he'd like to people through this experience. And, and so, um, you know, the branding is kind of all over the map. Um, it's, it's not that scalable because it's a permanent course on his, his farm. So it's not like he, uh, is running these races all around the world. And, you know, quite frankly, like if from a business standpoint, when you look at that farm, I mean, he, Mr. Mouse doesn't use a computer. He doesn't have very many MBAs in that office to say the very least. He doesn't have any, it's a real like kind of mom and pop shop over there. Um, it's, it's really the charm. It's what I love about the event. Um, is it feels very raw and, and old school and, and not commercial. And, and, you know, that's what I really gravitated towards. It, it felt like a throwback to another era altogether. Um, so, yeah, you know, he's not marketing savvy and, and he really never could have scaled this thing up. Yeah, I thought it was funny in the documentary you talk about there's a tough guy newsletter, but it's an actual physical newsletter. It's sent in the mail, no email marketing. And he just writes about, his donkeys and why donkeys are great. Yeah, the jelly leg news. It is so bizarre. There are all these stories that kind of have nothing to do with the. So whereas, I mean, you look at like Tough Mudder, they're, they have social media campaigns. They have millions and millions of Facebook followers. Tough guy at this, after 30 years almost, um, and obviously Facebook's only been around for six years. Tough guy has like 35,000 followers. Uh, they don't really have any understanding of how to use social media to leverage it for their own good. Um, so... Um, yeah, the Jelly Egg News is this quarterly newsletter that he, you know, he said that he spent $60,000 on postage uh, one year re- recently to to uh, send it out to people. Um, gets it and they're like, what the hell is this? So it doesn't really, <laughs> but it's, you know, again, part of the charm. It's very quirky. The, the man is like wildly eccentric. He's just stripped right out of like a Daniel Day-Lewis movie. Right. Yeah. He's sticking to his principles. It's the principle of the thing. Um, so let's talk about this because this is the whole, this is what your documentary is about. You're trying to figure out why obstacle courses are so popular. I mean, I've done them before. We've talked about this because um, you interviewed me for the documentary. I've done obstacle course, course races. In fact, I just did one last weekend uh, called Conquer the Gauntlet here in Tulsa. 
And whenever I'm doing them, there's this is always this weird existential moment when I'm in the in the middle of the race, doing a really hard obstacle, climbing under barbed wire, and there's smoke, and I'm thinking, I paid a hundred bucks to do this. Um, when you talk big picture, we'll get into the details later on. But what are the big driving forces that have made obstacle course racing so popular? Uh, I think you know, part of it is is it's hard to. Like if there were no photos, if there's no Facebook and no ability for people to post photos, I think you would see much, much lower numbers. Um, so I think social media by and large is, is a big motivating factor. The ability to brag and, and, and show your friends that you're this brand of tough. Um, you know, granted, there'd still be people as there were 20 years ago doing tough guy. There's still going to be that segment of population that, that wants to push themselves like this. But the ability to humble brag is, uh, I think, a, a better. Um, and then, you know, I think a lot of people are realizing they're missing something in their life. We've, we've created these, you know, digital worlds in which we spend so much time looking in screens and we're not really connected to earth. We're not outside. We're not working in our hand with our hands. We're not overcoming challenges. I mean, it seems like the whole by design modern life is meant is, you know, we're working to remove every single obstacle, um, from like, you know, groceries delivered to your door. Um, you know, it, it seems like everything is pushing us towards not having any kind of challenge. And I think that, ultimately people feel unfulfilled. And so when they do these things and they have this kind of sense of achievement crossing the finish line, you know, it's, it's kind of a revelatory experience for them. I know it was for me. Yeah. But why not marathons or weight training? What is it about the, the obstacle course race that you feel that you get a sense of achievement that you can't get with other activities? Um, yeah. I mean, marathon running is, I think, boring. Um, sorry to all you runners out there. Um, Boring. Let's say, just say boring in comparison. It's not boring compared to other things. But um, I think people want people want to be in shape, but they want the experience of getting into shape to be fun. And you know, these things are like adult playgrounds. You get to, you know, there are some obstacles like you know, you, tough guy has these massive A-frames that are that are they look rickety, they feel old, and, and here you are climbing up over these forty-foot behemoth obstacles and and walking on ropes across them, and you know, diving into mud pits. I mean, it, it just feels like we're playing, you know, cowboys and Indians as kids. And what's the breakdown in gender and obstacle course races? Is there more men than women who take part in these things? Yeah. Again, all the numbers are really kind of hard to, to, to get real stats, but I, I believe it's around 35% female. Um, you, you know, I looked at this as a, a masculinity crisis, you know, that that's one of the things that I explore in the film. And yeah, I think for a lot of men, this is a chance to do men thing you know, do manly things that they don't really ever get a chance to do. But it doesn't really explain why there are so many females doing this. So there's obviously, it's not just a masculinity crisis. There are a lot of women in mud. Yeah. Well, so what is driving the women then if it's not just about men not feeling manly? I think, you know, some of the other things would be, you know, just a loneliness and a disconnection that we feel in the digital age. Like we're very, very connected, but we're not really that connected. We don't do things in groups. We don't, we don't, share communal experiences. Um, we interact a lot through the internet. And I think when, you know, there's this maybe longing for social, real-time human interaction. Um, so that kind of community and camaraderie is a big draw for a lot of people. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. 
Suit started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. 
See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Right. And going back to this whole masculine crisis you talked about, that was one of the threads throughout your documentary. Um, you were talking about how when you were about to have your son or you, you had your son, um, you wanted to make sure you had this moment where like, am I, am I manly? Am I going to be a good role ma- model or father for my son? As you did these races, did it help you capture that feeling? Did it help you become a better man? Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a point in the film and in my life when a few things hit me at once i had failed miserably on a crowdfunding campaign um to raise move, uh, money for this film um and then on that day that the campaign ended starter ended um i ended up quitting a, a spartan race uh, a three mile spartan race totally my spirit broken um burpees and had kind of broken me and and i just didn't feel like i could go on i didn't feel like i could three mile race i was two miles into it and i was just gutted and so right after that, I, you know, I find out that I'm going to become a dad and, and, and I was terrified, you know, like I, I couldn't make, I couldn't finish a race. I couldn't make this dream of making this movie happen. And I felt like, and now I'm going to become a dad. And, and just that, that fear is what really kind of motivated me to, to want to at least steal up mentally and physically, um, by, you know, training and going to CrossFit and taking my physical health more seriously and, you know, trying to instill some grit in myself and take on some of these races and, and, uh, you know, conquer them so I could feel more capable and competent as a man. Um, so I would say the, you know, these races definitely for me changed my life in a, in a really great way. The thought that as I quit that three mile Spartan race, the thought that one day not in a year and a half, I would go out to the desert outside Las Vegas and in 24 hours, 50 miles at a tough mutter, um, was you know incomprehensible to me to that man quitting that spartan race um and i think it's really only because of these kinds of events and my my for them you know they kept and the fear of fatherhood all that kind of i guess transformed me and are you still doing them today are you uh, a regular sufferfest attendee yeah and th- you know that's one of the for me the beauties of these events is that they happen all year round so you know i probably do about one a month um and I like just having on the calendar that I can look forward to and, and train up for. So right now I'm training for my second crack at the world's toughest mutter, which is in November. And, you know, I'm running and doing CrossFit specifically be ready for that event. Um, so yeah, it, I, 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 I can't foresee a time when I would quit these and I look forward to doing them with my son someday. Right. So just so everyone knows, I, I do provide a bit of dissent in the documentary, but, but I do the obstacle course course races and I, and I enjoy doing them. I'm just sometimes curious about like, why am I doing this? What's the cultural thing that's driving me to do this? I mean, I'm trying, I guess I'm I'm very, I'm ambivalent about obstacle course racing. I, I mean, I'm trying to be thoughtful about why I'm doing this whole thing. And for uh, more criticism about obstacle course races, uh, recommend you all check out an article that my wife's uncle, who lives in Vermont, wrote for us uh, a few years ago. He's a sort of scraggly Yankee Vermonter who did uh, a Tough mutter with some family. And he kind of gave his cranky Vermonter description of the experience. Um, so if you're looking for that, you can check that out on the site. It was pretty funny. And um, 
one of the criticisms that he talks about, and I've seen levied at obstacle course racing, is how hyper-commercialized it's become. And I went to the Spartan race a few years ago, and I was just amazed about all these different things the Spartan race has to offer now. It's not just a race. You can go sign up with a Spartan race trainer. You can go on Spartan race cruises. There's Spartan race racing shoes. Was that another criticism you came across when you were doing the research for this documentary? <laughs> well, I, I do appreciate your voice of dissent or, you know, a healthy measure of sin um, in the film. And, you know, you, you're not alone. I think there's Mark Morford is a culture critic for the SF uh, gate, uh, SF Chronicle. And he, you know, he's not ag- ag- against it. He, he's, he questions the motivations of people doing this. And also like he see, sees it as an extreme form of like white privilege that, that, that we, uh, we go out there and we get tear gas just a little bit, but in this like safe kind of controlled environment. So, you know, that was a, a reoccurring criticism that I would hear is like, we're just playing army. You know, there's, there's no, you can walk off at any point and get a beer and, but you feel like you want to pretend that you're playing army. And then obviously the, you know, the narcissism of it all, it's, it's like the, it feeds into that whole like lead generation. And here we are posting photos of ourselves and, and, you know, some people take it really way too far and, and, and uh, you know, they, they get very culty and, and uh, you know, I guess self-righteous. And so there are, you know, those people, those elements in any community really where they just take things too seriously. Um, so I think for the general public, we can come across as um, <laughs> this people outside of this tribe might not understand why we do this. And um, there's this line uh, that JC Hertz, who you interviewed for your, I actually encountered her through your podcast. I didn't make it into the film, but she's talking about CrossFit. And it also applies to OCR. She said like it CrossFit was the first thing that made her empathize with evangelical Christians. Cause when you feel like you have found like, of course you want to tell everyone about it. Um, and so I think a lot of people who find obstacle racing, it's, it's such an extreme thing in this little subculture that they broadcast it maybe a little bit too much and, you know, can rub some people the wrong way. One of the other criticisms I've seen levied at obstacle course racing is how hyper commercialized it's become. I went, to, you know, I went to a Spartan race a few years ago, and I was amazed about all the the different things Spartan race has to offer. Now it's not just the race; you can you can sign up with a Spartan race trainer, you can go on Spartan race cruises, you can buy Spartan race racing shoes. Uh, was that another criti- criticism you came across when you were doing the research for this documentary? Uh, from you, absolutely, uh, and. <laughs> And, and sure, I mean, but the way I look at it is, yeah, they're absolutely trying to build lifestyle brands and empires. But, you know, ultimately selling something that's like hard to sell, they're selling pain. Um, they are, you know, I, I think the ends in this case justify the means. Like these races are very, very expensive to put on a traveling, you know, global event. So, you know, why shouldn't they be able to market it and and you know recoup costs and get sponsorships and like to me every everything in our world is so sponsored and commercialized like you can't drive down the sunset strip in los angeles without having ads in your face in every direction so to me it doesn't feel any more egregious than just life in western civilization you know right right there will be podcast ads in this podcast just so you know (laughs) so there you go uh you make an interesting point because i think a lot of people you know, don't understand this. They see these companies, they're making boo koodles of money. Tough Mudder is a $70 million a year company. But I, what I don't think a lot of people realize is that they're not making much profit. These things are really, really expensive to put on, not only building the course, but insuring it and all that stuff. 
Right, of course. And then, you know, the money they, back in the day in 2009 or 10, you know, Tough Mudder has definitely benefited from dirt cheap Facebook ads. It was very easy back then to reach potential customers. And now, you know, to run ad campaigns, it's obviously very expensive to hit even a fraction of their 5 million Facebook fans apiece. So, you know, there's a lot of marketing costs, there's a lot of insurance costs, there's a lot of, you know, and then, you know, they're building multiple properties. Like Spartan Race has a TV show on NBC now. Um, Tough Mudder, and they also have one on NBC Sports. Tough Mudder is, um, you know, they just announced a, a TV show on CBS, um, the world's toughest mudder, uh, which will debut, I think, on Christmas Day and air throughout 2017 on CBS Sportsnet. So, you know, they're, they're becoming these multimedia um, businesses and uh, you know there's a lot of cost to, to scaling these things up right so speaking of that the idea of the cost of, of to scale these things what's the future of obstacle course racing i mean let's talk about this first do you think it's going to continue to grow or is this some sort of cultural trend that will peter out you know it's not going to grow much more but it'll still be with us in the background sort of like crossfit um it's a good question i feel like well globally this is definitely growing and spreading and picking up rapidly in markets um in the u.s i i believe tough mutter is probably you know level at the moment and i think spartan race might be growing incrementally um but those days of the explosive massive growth um you know we're not going to see that unless let's say my documentary like you know touches some nerve and and a lot of people see it and um you know feel inspired to do it like in the way that let's say you know born to run had a there's a massive spike in ultra running after that book came out um so short of anything, any some kind of miracle like that, I, I don't see – a lot of people have made up their mind that we're crazy. You know, say for every one person who does obstacle racing, we have five or ten friends who think we're crazy. Um, and those ten or eight friends, whatever it is, have made up their mind they would never do it. I think, like, you know, this film might have the power to demystify mud and bring cynics into the space, thereby growing the sport. Um, but short of that, like, I don't think it will go away because I feel like it fills – it scratches an itch for quite frankly, I feel like this is a symptom of a society that's out of step. Like this wouldn't exist 50 years ago. Um, this doesn't exist in parts of the world where are daily challenges. Um, and so, you know, it's a symptom, but it's also kind of an antidote. Um, it, it does scratch the itch that people are missing. Um, Hannah Rosen, who's in the film, she wrote the end of men. I'm sure you're familiar with her. She had this like pretty interesting insight. She said she's from Israel and she didn't think Tough Mudder would hold any appeal in Israel because, you know, military service is mandatory and Tough Mudder is just kind of like the background of your life. Like when you're in high school, you go on these adventure training sessions and, and, you know, she just didn't think that that would, that this, they, they wouldn't need this outlet. But because of the way at least our life is structured now, we kind of need this outlet. If the zombie apocalypse comes, no one's going to be paying to do a Tough Mudders. <laughs> you know, like if if global if things happen in the world around us and so, you know we have life changes because of global warming or whatever, you know this will go away. But other than that, I kind of feel like it's here to stay. And I and I also think you know Spartan Race could build this into an Olympic sport. It, I would not be surprised to see obstacle racing in the Olympics in 10, 20 years. Yeah, I know that's one of Joe DeSena's goals. Do you think he's actually going to make that happen? Do you think people will actually want to say, like, I want to go to a Spartan race and watch? Or is it one of those events, uh, you know, in the Olympics where people aren't really watching, but it's going on and it's got some legs? Well, it'd have to change completely for it to be an Olympic sport. 
they, you'd have to get rid of a lot of the things that make Spartan what it is. Um, but I could absolutely see this. I mean, Spartan Race has some of the very best athletes in the world um, competing its levels for money. Um, and it's exciting to watch. Um, so I'd be surprised. I'd be more surprised not to see this in the Olympics in some form than to, uh, than to see it. Um, because like, you know, we're, you're testing your entire body. Um, and it's, you know, in these like kind of fast paced race formats and, uh, it's like, you know, it's like kind of the modern decathlon in, in some ways. Right. So talking about the financial viability of obstacle course races, is it getting more expensive to put these on? I mean, is there this expectation that they have to be even bigger each time? And because of that, it's squeezing out the local and regional races. Um, I don't, I mean, I think in general, yeah, a lot of those, there was a, a time where people saw the success of Tough Mudder Spartan Race and, and everyone was putting on their own obstacle race. And a lot of those have, you know, kind of shaken out. And even some big brands that came in with a ton of money, like Battlefrog, um, they came in with, they have a show on ASPN now, they came in with millions and millions of dollars, um, but they came in late and they had, you know, core branding and, and they, I'm guessing they must have lost $5 million at least over the past couple of years. They had a million dollars in prize money last year for, you know, the, the elites, they sponsored the Fiesta Bowl. Uh, they're the title sponsor for the Fiesta Bowl. Um, they just threw hand over fist money at this and they couldn't ever get any traction. They had, you know, under a thousand people at these races. So um, it's very hard for, you know, the, the little local races will continue. I'm sure they have their local followings, but um, there, it's hard for brands at this point to, to really there's not much room in the industry. People like know what they like and they, they do those events like Savage Race, Tough Mudder, Spartan, Rugged Maniac, Warrior Dash. Like, you know, they seem sustainable to me. I feel like the the few times I've been to a Warrior Dash, it hasn't done as well like the past few years. Um, to be, to be never been, uh, so I, I went to the Warrior Dash World Championship to see, you know, the athletes, but I have not done a Warrior Dash. And yeah, that that's a brand I don't think is, you know, they're scaling down as opposed to up. They have, yeah. It's not. It's it's not hard. It's like that fun, like the beer thing. You go and you dress up. You have a beer. I guess people want more. They want something more, like an actual challenge. Yeah, it's a good gateway, and it has been for a lot of people. A lot of people would do a Warrior Dash first because it seems less intimidating. But um, as people realize the Tough Mudder and Spartan Race aren't that impossible to do. They probably want the social currency that comes with those brands as opposed to maybe a Warrior Dash. Right. So Scott, let's say there's a guy listening to this and he's saying to himself, I want to try an obstacle course race. What's the best way to train for one? And this is coming from a guy, let's remember, that does like one a month. So what's the best way to train for these things? Um, I, you know, I've become a fan of CrossFit um, and I love trail running. I mean, I would, I'd run and I would, I'd do CrossFit and and the different grip strength things that come with that, like pull-ups. Um but, you know, if at the very basics, I'd be doing burpees and, and running, you know, that, that will get you, that will get you to the finish line. All right. That will get you there. Burpees and running. Okay. That's all you need. Well, Scott, where can people watch the film? Uh, on iTunes. Um, you can download it on iTunes. It's available now. Well, it's a great film. I got to watch it. And I'm also, I also make an appearance. Um, so if you want to check <laughs> me, make, check myself making a fool, go check it out. Hey, Scott, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brett. My guest today is Scott Keneally. He produced, directed uh, The Rise of the Sufferfest, a documentary about obstacle course races. It's available on iTunes. You can find more information at riseofthesufferfest.com. 
Also, be sure to check out the show notes at aom.is slash sufferfest. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Whatever you use to listen to the podcast helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.